This is the Self-Taught or Not podcast with Dylan Israel and Eric Hanchett, where we teach you the do's and don'ts of software development from two software development professionals, one self-taught and one not. All right, so we are back at it once again, and although we said that we weren't going to talk about really technical subjects on this, I think we're doing an exception because Eric and I, for those of you who don't know, currently both work in Angular, and I thought, and he thought that it'd be a great idea to to do such a such a podcast. Yeah, and I think we can open it up a little bit. I, I like the more soft topics, but I think just talking about programming languages in general, not getting too specific, not too technical, I think is the sweet spot in our podcast. And I think the Angular is is great because well, one thing I like about Angular is that it has all these really cool things built into it, which if you come from Vue or React, you kind of have to pull all these different libraries in while on the other hand, React has it, or excuse me, not React, but Angular has it all built in. Yeah, and that's sort of one of my people, I, I, you know, I get asked the same questions weekly, as I'm sure you do. Is like, what's better to learn, React or Angular? What's, you know, what do you like more? What do you work in? And, you know, I, th- I think we have to sort of get away from what you like more and what's best for the, the scenario. And to do that, you have to really understand is what you're trying to accomplish. But I do like Angular more because I, I like going to the sort of one-stop shop where I know that, hey, if I am going to use an additional dependency, it's maintained by a similar team. Yeah, it's going to look really similar between all the different Angular apps. You're always going to have these different components. You're going to be using services, directives. It's really similar. So let's jump into a, a few misconceptions. By the way, my voice is a little gruff today. I'm uh, hoping uh, I'm not coming down with a cold, but I hope you guys understand. Just working too hard on that open source project. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm working... <laughs> If you don't know, I'm working on an open source project called Dev Bootcamp. So that's a quick plug for that. I'll put a link in the show notes. Cool. So, so there's some definitely misconceptions I hear about Angular. And I don't know if you've heard these, Dylan, but I just was at a conference the other day and people were just kind of talking about different JavaScript frameworks. And once I brought up Angular, there's, they either get confused, they don't understand the differences between the old version of Angular, which is now called Angular JS, versus the new version, which is Angular, just Angular by itself, that's what we call it, which is usually Angular, sometimes you might call it Angular 2+, so they don't understand the differences between the two, but other things I hear is, like, it's too complicated, like, it's too, the payload side's too big, it's too confusing for beginners. Um, Have you heard these? Yeah, yeah, I have, and in terms of it being too complicated or too confusing for beginners... Um, one of the things I, I say to developers, and they say, should I learn React or Angular? And I, I typically will say, go learn React because that's where like a lot, of, a lot of jobs currently are. That's why they're teaching in boot camps and it's growing very rapidly. But one thing I, I will tell people is that I, I think Angular in terms of will introduce you to a lot of more advanced concepts and make you a better developer, like just because of the implementation of TypeScript. But in terms of payload size, I think it sort of depends on how you build your application. You can do things like lazy loading. They Just in Angular 8, they, for instance, uh, just by doing the update, lowered your bundle size by 7 to 20%. And so they, they're always working on these things. They're building new pipelines. So um, I think a lot of times is. It's just people like React. Like, and we've talked in the past where React is the best. It's like, okay, I think it's okay. Like, <laughs> it's the best ever. Yeah, I mean, that's good. You know, I have no friends that love Vue. I'm a big fan of Vue. I think it's, it's really awesome. And we have very passionate React developers and Vue developers. But I think Angular definitely is, is falling in, in a lot of confusion. There was also a survey. There's the state of JavaScript survey that, this, that they put on every year and they interview thousands of people in this um, this organization puts on and last year they had what um, the popular different frameworks and a lot of people put angular but they didn't specify the difference between angular js and angular so angular started getting really bad reviews like people were saying oh i don't want to use angular anymore but really it was because they didn't differentiate between the two so it's kind of it's it's really accelerated the misconceptions behind angular i think um, but today we are clearing those conceptions up. Obviously, it's not um, Angular is 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 easy. It's easy. It's actually really easy to get started. It has really great tooling, 
and it, it kind of generates everything for you. It uses classes. So if you come from a Java or C Sharp or backend background, you're going to be right at home with Angular. And even if you don't come from the backend, you just need to learn some basics of classes and object-oriented programming, and that'll help you a lot. Yeah, and I mean, that that's part of the reason that TypeScript's implemented in it, which is I, I'm a huge fan of. Like More than liking Angular, I just like TypeScript. I think it's one of the best uh, items to come in the last few years and really... You're even seeing nowadays, like it, it got shipped with Angular, but you're seeing more and more now that Vue projects and React projects are picking it up as well. Exactly. And and TypeScript's great. And one thing I know with classes, there is a, definitely a divide between the developer community. Some people love the JavaScript developer community, that is. Some people really like the, the new inclusion of ES6 classes that came out a few years ago. Some people are still a little hesitant on it. I know React you can create your whole app using classes. And then I know recently they've switched over to hooks, but classes are still really important. People use them everywhere. Yeah, and I, I feel like people complaining about the sort of the sugar syntax that came with classes is, you have to understand, looking at like prototypes and actually seeing like, like I'm currently teaching my girlfriend how to code as she goes through the problem. You know what made sense? The classes. You know what didn't make sense? Teaching her prototypical inheritance. Like, yeah. so, so like in terms of things being too confusing, um, it's one of those items where I feel like if you're just holding out because you don't like the new cleaner syntax that is relatable to almost every type of developer, that you're just sort of complaining. That's really, That's really it. Exactly. And I've seen the same thing too. Yeah. The prototypical inheritance stuff can be a little confusing at first. And I like objects like here's an object. Um, I, you, you said syntactic. I guess essentially it's syntactic sugar over the yeah, over, more, uh, prototypical inheritance. Yeah, basically it does 99.9% the same stuff. Right. And syntactic, syntactic sugar is just a way to say that it's, it's putting we change, it's the syntax. The syntax got updated that delivers the same functionality and just a cleaner version, at least it, in my opinion. That was the intent, I should say. So let's jump into the history of Angular. So it launched in September of 2016. It's only about three years old, really. Uh, if you want to go back to AngularJS, so there was a big confusion when AngularJS moved over to Angular. So if AngularJS had like this had directives and it had this different way of operating with its its lifecycle and basically Google couldn't I don't want to speak on behalf of Google but from my knowledge it wasn't easy for them to convert AngularJS over to what they wanted so they just rewrote the whole thing and created Angular which was first called Angular 2 plus but just Angular and so uh, AngularJS came out in 2010 but Angular came out in 20 September of 2016 yeah, and God knows the beta and alpha was out for like two years. So it's, it's <laughs> yeah. So even further, if you were using it earlier than that. So if you ever see a job app asking for ten plus years of Angular experience, then be wary of that. <laughs> yeah, any any job app that asks for ten plus years of any framework experience, be wary of whoever wrote that job app because <laughs> it's not. <laughs> uh, the version history. And when it came, it came from Angular 2 to Angular 4, I don't think I even heard anything about Angular 3. And then it went 5, 6, 7, 8, and they're pretty good. I almost say like this 6 to 8 month release cycle, Angular 7. Angular 8 just recently came out. Angular 7 was, I don't know, like 7 or 8 months ago. And uh, they have long-term support, though. So all the major releases are supported for 18 months. And they have 6 months of active support. Um, and then they have 12 months of uh, long-term support. Yeah, which sort of, you know, most major frameworks you're going to be working in today are going to have similar support plans. And part of the reason that you go and use a framework, uh, that's sort of, you know, one of the, the big three, if we want to say that. <laughs> uh, but uh, to the sort of just interesting fact about like, oh, we went from two to four, what the hell happened to three? If I remember correctly, um, so Angular follows sort of um, a they want all their major versions to release in sync. And apparently the router, if I remember correctly, they broke, they made again, then they broke again. And then they're like, just jump to four and everything because it's not going to, it's not going to work. So I think that's what happened to angular three. If I remember correctly. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm sure 
the, the, so Angular is almost like a package with a bunch of packages underneath it. Yeah. But it's all bundled together in using their tooling called Angular CI. So let, let's get into that. So there's a lot of different tooling. So we're going to kind of touch on what these are. We're not going to get into too much detail, but we'll we'll just kind of uh, go back and forth here. So maybe I'll start. Uh, Angular CLI is the tooling that you're going to use to create your Angular app. So unlike React or Vue, you don't you can't just plug in a, a CDN script into a, an index.html file and all of a sudden you have Angular. It doesn't work that way. Really, you need to have this tool to build your Angular apps because it's going to install all the dependencies and everything that you need. It actually was built upon the Ember CLI. So Ember CLI was kind of the forefront of, of creating these client tooling to help create these single-page application apps. And by the way, if you don't know, I, I, didn't even, I guess I missed this part. Angular is one of the top three frameworks where you create single-page applications, or SPAs as they're known, to create your web apps. But anyways, Angular CLI is, is the tooling that helps create it. It has uh, generators in there, so you can create, generate your services. You can generate uh, your, your directives and everything you need. And I'll explain what those are in a moment. Yeah, and probably the, the main reason that you're going to use CLI. And so I have a, a tech lead that, um, that we have both guested on his podcast that I've worked with. And he is, we, you know, he's the one who introduced me to Angular, but he's, he will complain again and again, like, how would you create an Angular project from scratch? How long, you know, how much time does that take? And apparently it takes about a week because that CLI is doing a lot of stuff for you. It's compiling, it's setting up, you know, when you create a new project, it's setting it up so that you can compile down to JavaScript, your TypeScript. It's setting up so that you have testing built in, that your SAS files are compiling down to CSS. So, you know, it's getting you all the that Webpack config, that Karma config, all those configurations so that you can make a very robust application, as well as doing your bundle sizing and everything so that it's... Um, the payload size is down. So CLI, um, you can use it to, you know, create a lot of these items, but uh, the sort of main thing in my eyes, anyhow, is just getting that initial sort of bootstrap, that very powerful bootstrap project together. And when you build it, you're basically just creating CSS and HTML files. That's at the end of the day, what we're creating that can just be thrown up anywhere and having all that tooling to do that for us makes our lives much easier because there's so many cool things like TypeScript, like, like Dylan just said that, makes things much easier. Yeah, and if, you, if you've ever been stuck on a webpack issue, and like you're going to, you eventually will, I couldn't even imagine setting that up and, and doing all this sort of stuff without jumping out my second story. Like it is, getting stuck on a stupid JSON config is probably one of the most frustrating things in the world. Yeah, not not fun at all. Angular console is is somewhat new. It's more of like, a UI version of Angular. So if you don't want to use the Angular CLI, you can use Angular Console to generate your apps. Uh, Angular Universal. I, I think you have a lot of experience in Angular Universal. Dylan, what is that? Yeah, so um, it's actually what I've been building my site video dev docs off of, which is a video documentation platform. And so Traditionally speaking, when you are when you are building a client side application or a single page application, it's going to generate that on the front end, which is fine unless you're worried about SEO or like you need to maybe make it faster. And so, part of the reason that you will have server side rendered Angular using Universal or Nuxt if we're doing Vue, and then um, I don't know what they do it in React, but I imagine there's something next. in React next. Yeah. So, is that one? Your, the search engines can now crawl your site because it's delivering it already pre-compiled from the server. And so there's the SEO benefit as well as the benefit of, of speed as well because now your server's rendering it, but does sort of the, the con to that is your server is now compiling it, which means that your costs on maintaining your server go up. Um, but yeah, so Angular Universal is pretty sweet. There's some some wonky stuff that happens with it, but it's it's been adopted by the sort of Angular team and and updated and um, you know you can't use things like the document because the document doesn't exist because it's on a server and so it's stuff like that we have to start thinking a little bit differently um, but that's that's really angry universal I haven't used it but it sounds pretty awesome there's a few other tooling uh, augury which is like a development tool plugin do you use that Dylan 
So, so I used to. Uh, my, my current workplace does not allow me to install Chrome extensions. And so uh, you could, it's, uh, we have locked down browsers because apparently in a lot of those free-to-use tools, there's like, well, if you work for an enterprise client, we're going to charge you sort of thing. And so I've submitted a Chrome extension request four months ago. Uh, <laughs> I, my, I don't think it's getting approved. Uh, but yeah, I, I used to use it. Um, it's a nice little tool. And a lot, of, a lot of frameworks nowadays will have development tools that are Chrome extensions that you can use to see where your code goes. So because not only, it's, it's sometimes it gets very hard to see the rendered out HTML and see what does this relate to my code? That's really what it's there for. Yeah, that's very cool. I don't use it too often. I'm I'm usually jumping in and just looking at either putting console log statements or you can, if you turn source maps on when you do your development work, you can just put breakpoints inside the browser uh, to do your debugging. It just depends on what you're trying to do. NX Narwhal, uh, I, I'm actually using this. I can speak to this. We're using this at our, our, my company. And uh, the Narwhal is like an extension. It's an open source extension that you can use to help create monorepos. So we have four or five of our Angular apps all in this, this monorepo, and it shares, has a shared library, so we can just pull in different libraries to the different apps really easily. It's really cool. Um, you can also do a lot of neat things with testing. You can do a lot of different graphs. It works really well with Angular Console. So we're playing around with that. We're, we have all our, all our apps in it right now, and, and it's definitely neat. So testing, so the testing tools, they've changed a little bit in the last few years, but essentially for your end-to-end -end testing, there's Protractor, although you can install things like Cypress if you want to change your end-to-end -end test framework. But Jasmine is also uh, kind of out of the box, comes with, with the Angular tools, and then Jest, I think you can choose now Jest with Angular 8 and 7. I think that's new. Yeah, and so the transition should be easy enough. Now, when I created it, I don't think they... So, like, I created an Angular 8 application, like, six, eight weeks ago when I started Video Dev Docs. I don't think they actually ask you if you want to use what testing framework you want to use, but, I, you know, you do it one time, I forget. But I, um, I do plan on switching to Jest from Jasmine because there's some speed efficiency when it comes to your tests as your project grows and, and um, sort of breaks it down a little bit cleaner in terms of the test coverage. Although uh, I haven't dove into Cypress yet, but I, I, someone told me, um, I did read a blog on, the, on Cypress, and at some point the Angular team's going to make a move to that. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I saw in the blog. And from what I've seen about Cypress, it looks to be easier to work with than Protractor. Yeah, I've been using Cypress in our projects. It's pretty awesome. It's really easy to just has like a graphic interface and you can see exactly how the tests are running. And you can even easily just use these selectors to do what you want and press buttons. We still kind of rely on our company at with our QA testers. They have a big automation suite and they use these QA test tools where they can do end-to-end -end testing a little bit better than, than what we're doing. So we kind of almost rely on them to write all our own tests. If you're looking for a store, uh, there's NGRX. This is like a, a flux type store pattern that you can install. And it's dependency you can install in your Angular app. There's also, you can even use Redux itself, just straight out of Facebook's Redux if you want. And then, uh, of course, uh, we mentioned before, there's TypeScript support built in. Do you use, you, do you use NGRX at all? So... I try to stay away from state management. So the, the, this is the reason why. As I, I consider it, by and large, an, an anti-pattern. Um, most of the time, from what I've seen with organizations implementing some sort of store state management, it's because they have poorly architected their project and it's very hard to, for things to be in the state that they need to be. And, you know, what's like the example I give to why I think it's a poor, poor uh, thing and why I try to avoid it is like rule number one of web development is to not have fucking globals. And it's essentially a global that's hard to modify and that has, has you know, accessors and all this sort of stuff. And so like, um, this is, I try to avoid it, but I have used it. Um, but I, I always try to shut it down if it's up to me because it, I think what happens is it, it slowly gets corrupted again and again, and it sort of becomes this uh, anti-pattern. It definitely can be, and it's definitely not for all, every project. We have an app that's now approaching 
a hundred different components and we are using NGRX and it is a beast, but it's so much nicer to like import that NGRX store into one of our components that we needed. We can do fetches or we can do dispatches and, and set information. So, you know, you know, Violet, my mileage may vary, but uh, let's, let's move on. Lazy loading is, is something that you can do, which is part of the router. So you can have different routes load when they're hit instead of right when the app loads, that can be really Cool. We do prefetching in our app, so when you hit the first route, it loads that route first, and then in the background, it loads all the other routes. That way, uh, what we found that when we had lazy loading every single component, we would have a slight delay every time they click continue, and it was sort of noticeable because it would be downloading the JavaScript for each route every time they click next. So instead, we decided to do this prefetching, so the first page pops up pretty quickly, and then if they sit on that page for like more than 10, 20 seconds, all the other ones download in the background, but it's not waiting for the whole app to download. Yeah, I, I just implemented this in my my application as well. And so I think lazy loading, you know, we, we've been talking a little bit about, we've been mainly talking about Angular, but we haven't really talked too much about single page applications, which Angular is. And one of the, there's several major benefits to using a single page application. And lazy loading is one of those and routing is one of those. And so, you know, you have to sort of define a lot of times your strategies with these things of how you want them to work. And um, lazy loading is probably one of the best things that have been added to uh, not just, just single page applications in general. Yeah, and I think it doesn't matter if you're in React or Vue. Eventually, your bundle size is going to get pretty big. Like, it's it's going to be the point where people on mobile are going to have to wait, like, 10 seconds to download it. So anything you can do to help those... Is, I think it's mostly the mobile users that get that get shafted when you're using a, a client-side framework and you start your bundle size starts getting bigger. So, yeah, anything you can do to help those people out. Because you literally have to have your bundle size down to, like, 200K to 500K for it to load any quickly if you're on a mobile, um, that's really hard to do. So if you can do like uh, server-side rendering or breaking up to lazy loaded modules, that really helps. In fact, in our app, we still don't have sub-optimum mobile. We're still a little slow. Uh, we're still trying to figure out how to even get it even faster. But now since our app's getting so and so bigger, we're trying to figure that out. And it's always like a, a game you play of like, okay, do I need this library? There's tools that you can run that uh, just analyze your bundle and then tell you the size of everything inside of it. And then you can say, figure out like what's too big. And usually Angular is pretty good. It, it does code splitting and tree shaking and things like that, where it sees if you're not using a certain module or library that it doesn't include it inside the bundle. So usually it's pretty good at that, but eventually you you're going to have problems. Have you ever worked on a project? So I've, I, I did some research a while back when we were trying to do efficiency gains on our app. and um, I, I came across this concept that a lot of people set sort of bundle limits in the, like hard-coded, not hard-coded hard in the sense of um, like the pipeline literally will not accept the PR and build and won't be merged in if your your bundle size goes above this amount in sort of, have you, have you ever worked on anything like that? No, but you know, I noticed when I was building my Angular 8 app, we just upgraded it, it started saying in my warnings that if it's over two megs, it's like your bundle size is over two megs. Warning. So I wonder if there's something you can build into your build pipeline that warns you about that too. Yeah, and so that that that's sort of what I'm talking about. Where, but then you 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 know your build pipeline will reject it, and so you sort of set these limits on what's there, um, similar to how you would have like not let your your code coverage degrade. Like, you know, say you were at 80% code coverage, you're like, if it goes down, down below 75%, don't progress, you know, accept it, right? Um, and doing that, except now with sizing as well. Interesting. Yeah, we'll have to look into that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's one of those things where like, you have to work at a very professional place where the business understands the cost of the speed gains or the, you know, the cost to maintain the speed, because if not, they're just going to tell you, I don't give a shit, increase the megabytes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have to be a kind of a sophisticated organization to even start looking at that stuff. And yeah, some don't even care. That's funny. The, um, one thing I noticed too, that with angular eight is that you can set. So if you are going to support those older browsers, like IE 11 or, or, or older, 
you can set up differential loading, which will create different bundles for different browsers. So it'll detect if you're on IE11 and send a different bundle down than if you're on like the latest version of Chrome. And that helps with your bundle size too. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on. We do have uh, internationalization and Angular material. But let's just jump into the elements of the Angular app. So here are kind of the building blocks of Angular app. So if you jump into development, you're going to expect these. Uh, I think in all the different major frameworks, components are going to be the building blocks of every app. Inside Angular, there are classes that are there. And then you set up with inside your class, you set up which location you want to have your style sheet, which location you have your HTML, and which location you're going to have your Actually, just your HTML and your CSS file, and but you don't specify your spec file, I don't think. Yeah, no. So your spec file is going to be picked up through your your config files, um, and then what we're talking about is called a a decorator, which is something I'm hoping is added. I I really like the concept of decorators, where uh, to give you an idea, essentially a decorator is something that you throw into a file that collects metadata about your application. In this case, um, you know, it's either going to be your template location or the selector name that's going to be associated with it or the styles. And there's a bunch of other things where it's sort of almost just like, um, a J like a JSON collector of where these things are located and what they're going to do. And so I really like decorators and I think they're working on something to be part of the ECMAScript standard, but you know, so that stuff goes, it's going to be like a decade before they come out. Yeah, I know you have to, in Babel, which is a way to, you can, it's a plugin project that you can use to convert your code into JavaScript. So if you're using some of these newer features that aren't available in JavaScript, I think there's an experimental flag for decorators that you turn on so that it recognizes it. So yeah, it's deeply integrated into TypeScript and you and, and you can put these decorators above classes and certain things, and it uh, it does things for you. Like it kind of adds more functionality for you. So you can put in a decorator inside your your Angular apps, and essentially, I've heard some criticism. You do have to put. I think you can combine it all in one file, but most of the time, you do have at least three files: your your TypeScript file, your CSS file, and your HTML file. For components, yeah. So I like that. And this is one of those things where it's a, a difference of opinion. Um, and so, you know, Angular typically will break out all of its dependencies. Your template will be one place, controller one place, and your test one place, styles one place. I like it that way. Um, but I definitely understand the the sort of sentiment that, you know, in, in view, for instance, you're going to have things piece by piece in the in your file because... In, in their stand in that standpoint and I, I say this someone who's done a limited amount of view the the idea is that we have a separation of concerns but they are not separate <laughs> yeah. yeah so in view you have a single file component and then you have a template at the top which is basically your html and then you have your kind of uh your your logic in the middle in a script tag and in the bottom you have your styles that's the essence of single file component and then you go to the far extreme which is react which you're basically you're mixing and matching your html and your javascript in in your jsx in one file and then you can i think you with styled components you can put those in a different file but a lot of times you just have everything in one file it's all mixed together so yeah that's the opposite end of the extreme so let's move on. So you do have modules. That's one thing that can be annoying when you first start working with Angular is every time you create a new component or class, you have to import that class into what's called a module file that tracks everything and all your dependencies and, and all your classes inside your, your app. Yeah, in, in fairness, modules, you, if you've ever worked in Angular, you, it's very easy to see that modules were kind of an afterthought. And so they, it's one of the more funkier things in Angular that, in my opinion, wasn't the most well-developed. But they are very important. Part of the ways that we're able to lazy load and how you know we talked earlier about how important that is, is because we have these modules that say these dependencies go here and this is what's re required to load this page. So we won't load what's on all these other pages. Um, but definitely a little bit wonky when you're getting going. 
and you can, when you first start learning, you can just have one module, the app module, and that's it, and just throw everything in that sucker. But when your app gets a little bit bigger, you might have modules that are important to other modules, that are important to other modules, and then it can get a little confusing. But we won't get into that today. Um, the, uh, there's something called directives, which uh, there's a lot of built-in directives in, inside of Angular. You might see ngifs, it's like if statements, ng4s, ng-switches. You can do a lot of binding anywhere inside your HTML. You can bind stuff from your, from your TypeScript file into it, like you can use ng-class. Uh, you can do two-way data binding and one-way data binding too. So ng-model provides a, a two-way data binding, parsing, and validation for form controls, for example. Yeah, so directives, so there, there's sort of two types of directives. There's the structural directives that Eric went over, like ngf, ng4, ng-switch, where it's actually going to um, either change the structure of your document, uh, and then there's um, directives where you're maybe modifying something. And so it's, directives are one of those items where you're not going to create too many custom directives most of the time. I made one last week where it was essentially a debounce directive. So if you click this element, it debounces the click. Um, items like that, and sort of the go-to directive when you're learning is like, oh, change the color of this element by just putting a directive on it and all this sort of stuff. Um, but I don't know, maybe you have a different opinion on directives. I've found directives, like the in built-in ones you're going to use daily, but like creating custom directives, I, I feel like I do once every six months. Yep, yeah, so not me too. I don't use many custom directives. You certainly could if you found situations. When you create a custom directive, you can then add it directly into the HTML. So we did a feature flag one where we have a, a feature flag directive that we can just sl slap on any HTML element, and then it'll either appear or disappear depending on these these flags are turned on or off, and what we pass into it. So that that that's one thing you can do. Uh, pipe operators are ways. How would you describe pipe operators, Dylan? Pipe operators are all about presentation. So you're going to use a pipe in your components, typically where. Um, Say we have some data, we're going to pass in an array, but what we want to see is maybe that array concatenated with something, or maybe we want to have that array filtered. Pipe, pipe operators are really there to have data that's going to go on the screen, but is not there in the form that you want it. And there's other ways that you can go about doing that by using functions that then modify that data, have a presentation, but pipe operators. And a good example of that is the currency pipe, which is something that you're going to, you know, it's going to come natively where, hey, I have this number of 80.80 .80, and I want it to be displayed as whatever currency that the user is in. And, um, you know, there's a number pipe where maybe you're going to control what the decimals look like and items like that. But it's really about taking that data and displaying it in whatever form or, or fashion that you want. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what I use it for mostly, just presentation. I think the most common one is, yeah, dates and, and currency. I, I, we use a third-party plugin, too. I'm trying to remember the name of it. That does a ton of different, uh, different gives you more additional pipes. So instead of just being able to do the built-in ones, like currency and, and dollars, that you can, uh, it's called NGX Mask. So it adds a bunch of really cool ones that you can do that uh, is beyond beyond the the normal ones. Like, like I did it, like adding a dollar sign to an input, and then uh, auto formatting it in certain ways. It was really uh, helpful for me. Yeah, and I think pipes are one of those items that are underutilized by a lot of Angular developers because they find other ways to do similar things that are oftentimes less efficient. Um, and so I I think pipes are one of those items that maybe angular devs need to just look at again because so back to that decorators you have things where that you can in your pipe set it so that it only runs once or it only does this and there's items that will make it much more uh, efficient than having a function return your data for instance yep and so if you're so inside angular you can you can set different bindings different directives that will trigger when things change so you can put an input like a change Every time a, a change event happens on an element, it can then trigger something inside your TypeScript file. If you're noticing you're doing that a lot and you're doing different, just changing the values or changing things, you may want to start looking at, at pipes and might be a more efficient way to do things. Uh, one thing I'd, um, we're not going to get too big into, but RxJS is built into Angular. If you ever have to deal with the forms that we'll talk about in the, in the future or NGRX, 
everything's, or even if you're doing uh, HTTP requests, you're going to be dealing with RxJS. And it's a way of thinking of your data as streams instead of like promises. So these streams of data can then be uh, piped to different areas. You can add uh, debounces. We mentioned that earlier. You can add in retries. You can add in a take one, so it only runs once, or you can have it run twice. And then you can subscribe to different RxJS functions and then do things with it. I think you can get away with not doing a ton of RxJS. You can convert your RxJS, like the built-in HTTP library into Angular is by definition uh, um, a uh, observable. But you can convert it into a promise if that's the way you like it. And I know that, Dylan, you like to do that sometimes. Yeah, so um, I RxJS is very powerful, and I'm a big fan of it. But I also think for most applications that it's overkill. So like a lot of the a lot of in my current project, all I'm doing is taking the route that's there and taking the params and doing a single API call. Um, and instead of going through all the sort of black magic that RxJS does and having to subscribe and um, then having to unsubscribe and all this additional stuff, because it, it's not a, it does a lot of powerful things, but if you don't need those powerful things, um, promises in my case is what I, I like to go with, but I, I do use RxJS daily because of everything that it does. Uh, it really makes a lot of the, it, it makes it a lot less error prone from the user because of how powerful it is. And a lot of those features where you're like, oh, I double clicked it. Well, that's fine because we have a debounce on there and our, we're controlling our data stream. I want to not fire off a new API call because it's, it's the same value as the previous value. There's a lot of stuff that RxJS can do, but I, I typically like to stay away from it if it's not needed. So do you think beginners should learn RxJS if they're learning if Angular? I th <laughs> so yes and no. Uh, I think you should take the time to understand what an observable is, and then as you go and sort of figure out like how I'm gonna how you're gonna utilize it, that may come later, right? I think you need to understand the fundamentals of it about having your data stream because one one very powerful aspect of using things like observables is now we can update our data when the server says something's changed and it, it can you know typically when we're using promises the way that you think about data flowing this goes back to the whole stream is that i go i get the data from the server it comes back but when you're using rxjs it it changes that whole dynamic where you go get the data it comes back but we're still connected so if the data updates on the server your spa is going to update and you have to be aware of that, and there's sort of some, some counterbalance. So I think it adds complexity. So I would say first sort of get comfortable with Angular and then maybe use the, the fundamentals of RxJS before you start diving deep because sometimes people go way too deep in RxJS and they've just been hacking things together before they actually really understand how it works. Have you ever had to cancel anything? I know one thing RxJS does better than promises is you can actually cancel things. You can't cancel a promise. Yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't had the uh, the opportunity to do that. But there's there's definitely some situations where you can yeah, use RxJS. It's not a one to one thing. It's not like oh, you can use one exchange for for the other. Um, Promises is more simplistic, but it also has many less features than than um, RxJS with the the streams. But um, with that comes complexity. So you just, um, I, I like to raise the point about it because I feel like a lot of times developers just do what they think other developers are doing instead of, which is fine most of the time, but instead of thinking about what's best for their use case. I think the next topic, you know pretty well, uh, dependency injection, there's something called that at injectable decorator and services. So services, well, go ahead and explain what services are. Yeah, so services um, for a lot of JavaScript developers. Um, if you're not, if you're a C sharp dev or a Java dev, it's all going to make sense. But for JavaScript developers, you can think of services as almost like utility functions that you're passing in as a dependency. And you know, as you go and build, let's say for instance, we have a service that's calling a quote API. We're going to get a quote. One of our dependencies that you might have is a the HTTP client where we're passing that in. So when we use the quote API, we're going to create an HTTP that's going to go and fetch the data that we're going to use. And so it's really about utilizing, utilizing the concept of dependency injection, which 
traditionally, if you were just doing like regular JavaScript, you wouldn't necessarily do it this way. You'd probably just have some sort of util file that you import and do it that way. But it's very similar in that fashion. Yeah, and the way I think of services is they're more like a way to share information between multiple components because you can have you can actually do it both ways. But the traditional, probably idiomatic way of using services inside Angular is that it's it has one instance and that instance is almost like a, um, a singleton and it can be shared between multiple components and you can uh, have that data be available like a utility, like you said. Um, but it would have that information kind of between all of them. You can even set information in there and share it, which is, is helpful. Yeah, and it goes back to the whole um, topic of RxJS, where a lot of times when you want to treat your service as a singleton, you'll have a behavior subject or a subject, some of these more, some of these data stream topics that you may not be familiar with, so that maybe we're all listening to the same stream. And then when that stream sends something, it updates multiple parts of the application. Yep, that's a good point. And also dependency injection, uh, you, we touched on that. It's just a it's it's a design pattern where you're you don't have to like instantiate the the class or object to put it inside your application. You just throw it in the constructor, so it makes it a little bit easier to add it into your app. Uh, routing libraries, I use these uh, occasionally. Well, I actually built into Angular, of course, is routing, and then there's these different types of routing elements that you can use there's guards there's router links these really come in handy when you're trying to protect certain parts of your app if you have some parts of your app that are authenticated and some that aren't authenticated you can use these guards forms libraries uh, is really a powerful feature inside inside angular so you have these reactive forms but there's also template driven forms so it makes it really simple to create uh, these really complicated your easy or complicated forms. I'll give an example. So when I first started learning Angular, even just maybe last year, I was creating these forms and I was just putting, just using the form tag, putting the inputs in, putting the different labels in, but I wasn't using any of the, the uh, reactive or the template-driven forms that Angular has. So I would have to, every time something changed in one of those elements, and I want to do, let's say, validation on it to make sure someone didn't put in, you know, a, a letters or some incorrect input into some of my inputs. I would have to look at the state every time it changed, go into my TypeScript file, do a bunch of validation, and then uh, then show an error on the screen. But as I got more, as I learned more and more about about Angular and their reactive forms and their template-driven forms, I realized. There's so many built-in things that you can do where I can say, oh, is, has someone clicked on it? Is it dirty? Is it valid? Can I create my own validations? So you can set up your whole Angular form, set up all your validation using reactive forms, then connect it up to your forms in your HTML, and then you have all these built-in things that will say, oh, this form is valid, this form is not valid. And then you don't have to write all this extra boilerplate code to do it. Yeah, reactive forms. Anyone who's had to do form validation or essentially stupid proof your application is what I like to call it, where it's like you put your phone number in your email because you're a moron. Reactive forms is going to stop that from happening and make it a lot easier. And template-driven, it, it's for smaller forms, not as big of a deal, and you can do some stuff with it. But um, you're dealing with complex form functionality where... That, that's usually where you want to dive reactive in it. There's a lot of boilerplate that goes with it without a doubt. That's probably people's number one thing. Like you have a 10, line, 10 input form, you might have 200 lines of reactive forms to set it up, <laughs> but it's very powerful and um, something I think people should get comfortable with. You can even create your own accessors. So you can do a control accessor. You can essentially extend the reactive forms yourself and create your own validations and have it so that way data is really quickly shared between your your main reactive form and your it's just a lot of stuff you can do and I've, I'm, I'm still deep diving into everything it can do it's pretty neat uh, there's ways you can transfer or send information between parent components and child components there's inputs which is an at input decorator and then there's out at output decorators that you can do event emitters that can go back to your parent components 
Uh, you can pass any sort of values you want from parent components down to your child components. There's even more complicated things you can do with view children, which I'm not going to get into. Uh, there's, there's several ways you can pass information back and forth from components. Do you use inputs and outputs? Yeah, all, all the time. So like as you're building your component library, typically you're going to want to break it out into smaller pieces. And so you'll have maybe a parent that has um, some data that a child needs. Let's say we had a page and that was our parent, I guess, which would be a very large component. But then on that page, we had a, um, a list that we wanted to pass items from that list. So instead of calling that API call in two places, we call it once and then we can pass that list portion to our child list component. So uh, inputs and output, that's typically going to be something you're going to use very frequently when diving into components in Angular. I had a friend that would every time they would use add inputs, they would actually bind methods and then use the dot bind so you could, didn't have to use outputs at all. So there's a ways of getting around it. I didn't think it was very clear what I was doing. I didn't like like it, but yeah, that's just somebody who has a preference that is <laughs> that is uh, gonna hack their code together because they don't like something. Uh, <laughs> that's what that sounds like. So to wrap it up here, we have lifecycle hooks. So these these are ng on init, ng on a destroy, ng on changes. Um, you can also have a constructor inside your classes. So these are ways you can track when either the component is created or it's destroyed, as the name suggests. You can do kind of setup code inside your ng on init. I think that's pretty common. A lot of people, as soon as the, the component loads, they want to you know, talk to an API and grab some information to display on the screen and do X, Y, Z. So that's how you do it, just all through these uh, lifecycle hooks. Yeah, and I would say lifecycle hooks are one of those items that have become sort of synonymous with single-page applications and understanding that in our web apps nowadays, there's certain things we want to do at certain times. And I think life cycle, the, the concept of lifecycle hooks are, and they, they exist nowadays in just JavaScript, right? When the DOM, DOM loaded or DOM content loaded or, you know, jQuery, let's go, uh, when document ready. And so these are concepts that are familiar on a very document-based level. Now we're taking that concept and we're doing it on a component-based level. And the last thing I want to talk about is just animations. They have a built-in, pretty complicated animation library. I haven't used it. Have you used it? Animation? I, I, I have. And it is so ridiculous. Uh, so it does everything that you need to. And all it, all it screams to me is that I'm a JavaScript developer and I don't want to learn CSS. That's all it, that's <laughs> all it screams. It's basically abstracting everything that's in CSS and giving a function. It's very powerful. I have used it. Um, most of the time nowadays, all I do is I will, oh, I, I'll avoid it and whatever I'm, whatever transition I am doing, I'll just put a transition of 0.3 seconds and then I'll animate what I want from state one to state two. Yeah, I'm same way. I don't, I think you could probably do everything outside that and the animation library that angular presents but i guess if you get really good at it it's, it's powerful the the main thing that i used i use it for is when a component is loaded and a component's destroyed if there's something i want to showcase that's really the only time i ever use it and that makes it a little like that's one of the more useful parts of it yeah you know honestly i don't do tons of animations in my apps Maybe just a little flourish here and there, maybe a little transition, transformation. But most of the time, I think they're just too much. Unless you're doing some like really splashy landing page, you want to get someone's attention or doing this really cool animated map or something. I, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of animations. I think yeah. it's really cool you can do it, but... It's, I also don't even know where to start. Like I understand the idea of transitioning something from here to there, but... Like I, I, I'm sure we've all had those those stakeholders or those owners or whatever you want to call them. That come, can you make it pop? Can you make it sparkle? What does that mean? Tell me what you want me to make it do. What do you mean make it pop? I'll put pop right in here in text and like. Uh, but yeah, if if you don't have a stakeholder or a UI UX guy telling saying hey make it do this, then you're probably not going to dive into it too much. Yeah, exactly. So that's all I got today. Do. You I think we probably missed a few tiny parts, but I think that's, in a nutshell, the beginner's uh, components and things that are that you should know for Angular. Yeah, I mean, there's 
Angular is very vast. I'm learning stuff all the time. Like I learned that there's a meta service, metadata service today, and that there's a title service. If you want to access the title. So Angular really does have quite a few pieces and, um, you know, you can utilize what pieces you want about it, which makes it sort of very lightweight at, at the end of the day. So you're not, you don't have to use all of it. Um, but I'm sure there's stuff we lost. We, um, we, we can talk about, you know, TypeScript in depth and maybe in the next episode, cause I'm, I'm a big fan of that, but Angular, uh, these are the pieces to get you up and going to get you understanding. And, uh, yeah, that's all I got. Yeah. Give it a shot. And also really good resources online. Uh, I know Udemy, Maximilian Schwarzmuller's react or he has react course and he also has a angular course. I would check that out. I, when I first learned at react and excuse me, angular and react, I both checked out his courses and they were helpful. Yeah, and some people, some people like the Angular Tour of Duty Hero app or whatever. So, like, Angular site does have a introduction app. I think it's dog shit. Uh, like, I did it when I was first learning Angular. I spent like a day on it, and I was like, "What the hell is going on here?" You're probably better off getting a Udemy course for ten bucks or watching a YouTube crash course on it and calling it a day. Yeah, so Angular.io has all the official documentation. It has that Tour of Heroes app that Dylan just talked about, which I agree it's not perfect, um, but it's sort of it tries to teach you everything about Angular in this one app. Where it teaches like, oh, here we're adding a service. This is how you create your component. This is it's a little heavy-handed, but uh, and I also notice I will do a little criticism. I think the docs aren't as good as other frameworks. There's certain times where I'll pull up something I want to learn in in Angular, and I'll pull up the docs, and all it is is just a reference to the code and you have to literally like read the code on the screen to figure out what it's supposed to do. And there's no examples. So um, you're almost better off at times just Googling it and just seeing if someone wrote an article about it. Yeah. And I, I think you can, someone asked me like, how would you describe the dynamic of our podcast? And I would say, I think next time I'll say, well, I'll say something's dog shit and Eric will say that it needs some, so there's some room for improvement <laughs> because I will say those docs, I, I was on there today. It's literally like, here's what the interface is like, well, can I get an example of how you might use this? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> awful. Absolutely awful. That's definitely some room for improvement as Eric might say. Yeah, and it's just, and one of the things is just huge. There's so many things in Angular that, like I said, I didn't even know about the meta service either. All right, man. All right, that's Peace. it. Hey guys, thanks for watching. If you want to find more about what I'm up to, go to dylanisrael.com. And if you want to know what I'm up to, you can check out my website at eric.video. If you haven't already, please leave us a five star review on iTunes. It really helps us out. And if you do, you might even be featured on our next episode. Don't forget to check out the website at selftaughtornot.com. From there, you can sign up for a mailing list where we give away free courses and a bunch of cool stuff. And we'll also let you know when the next episode comes out. And finally, if you didn't know, we have a Facebook group. It's called Code Tech and Caffeine. We have over 10,000 members. And you can find the link at selftaughtornot.com. So come join us. We have tons of developers willing to help you guys, mentor you guys. Check it out. Just make sure you go to selftaughtornot.com and check out the Code Tech and Caffeine link. Thanks and take care.